0: Welcome to Season 3 of Should We?
1: A conversation with friends about the everyday choices that make us.
0: Brought to you by MailChimp. So, Diana, it is a Wednesday... And here we are in our studio together. Just the two of us. What should we talk about?
1: We should talk about how my lower back hurts so much because of my gym experience yesterday. Oh no, Diana, what happened? It was all it was all men and we did deadlifts. <laughs> <laughs> I joined this gym that was like mindful strength training. And it has been, and it was yesterday too, but I was all of a sudden lifting like twice as much as I had the last time because I was comparing myself to the men around me. But I did challenge my beliefs about what I'm capable of at only some cost to my lower back.
0: Oh no, Diana, (laughs) should we compare ourselves to the men around us? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds terrible. Yeah, I'm proud of myself.
1: And that's helping to make it better. Um, And I don't think it's actually an injury. It feels like the kind of hurt that really prefaces strength. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The real question I want to talk about today, though, is should we be powerful?
0: Should we be powerful? I mean, why not? Is it even a question?
1: Well, right. I mean, we don't get to decide because we already are. (laughs)
0: You know? Yeah, right. So, okay, let's say we're already powerful. Then what's the next question that comes with that? What should we do with our power? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Should we express our power even if it makes others feel uncomfortable?
1: That's a really, okay, we got to go deep on that one. Uh, So my relationship to other people's comfort is, I absolutely feel responsible for it, but I can't actually make other people comfortable or uncomfortable. This is actually a note that I found scrawled in my notebook that I'd willfully forgotten from one of my last coaching sessions.
0: (laughs) It sounds like you take notes during your coaching sessions.
1: When I'm being coached, yes.
0: Good idea. I should take more notes, Diana. Note to self, take more notes. Hold pen in hand more often.
1: Uh, Should we take notes?
0: Yes. Why? Because I don't remember anything unless I write it down.
1: Yeah, I got kind of bored of writing notes because I would never go back and look at them. And the archivist in me was like, it's all for nothing. And I flipped the table. But I'm really enjoying having notes from... Uh, my coaching sessions when I'm being coached, because I'll look at it at least once more the next time that I'm preparing for a coaching session. And I find all the time that there are parts of it that I willfully forgot. Like, I totally remembered from my last coaching session that I had committed to reworking my relationship to my calendar, but I forgot that i also committed to reworking my relationship to other people's comfort. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, i think that i've at different points in my life i have taken a lot of notes and then lately i i just realized when you said that i'm i'm in a phase where i'm not taking very no- many notes at all. I'm just like being in the moment. <laughs> Like there's this aspect to taking notes that if you're doing it feverishly or obsessively, then you kind of miss, you're not really there. You're like taking notes, you know, maybe I'm saying it's hard to multitask, but when I can do it in a balanced way, I think that I remember something better if I wrote it down and it doesn't matter if I went back to it.
1: This reminds me of a part of my life that's so so much of a signature of my life that I may have talked about it on this podcast before, but if I haven't, now is the time. When I was at business school, I spent the full first semester of business school taking feverish notes in every class, really transcribing most of the conversation, including attributing quotes to fellow students in some cases, because at Harvard Business School, half of your grade in each class is the quality of your comments, and one of the characteristics of like a classically good comment is that it builds on what other people have said, with brownie points if you can reference them by name. And so I would take these meticulous full-page notes in a dot-grid notebook. I ordered a bunch of dot-grid notebooks, and I was uh, was really filling them up. And then I got a very poor grade in my leadership class for a semester, and I thought it was because of the cold call that I'd flubbed. And then my professor told me it was because... I just hadn't made very good comments the rest of the time. And this was extremely hard to hear. It was not comforting to be in my first semester of business school and do poorly in leadership. You can't get much more on the nose than that. Um, But I decided to take that as an invitation to approach the next semester differently. And so what I decided was to see whether taking almost no notes would cause me to listen more closely and uh, come up with more generative remarks. And so I would just sit there kind of like zoning into the conversation. Like I would just kind of sink into the flow of the conversation. And I had this tiny notebook in front of me. And during each class, I would fill, you know, one three inch tall page with notes. So I could only fit The eight most notable things in each class into each notebook page. Um, And then I would give myself a grade for my comment performance in that particular session on a page where I was able to tally all of the classes over the course of a semester per class. And this worked very well, and I kept it for the rest of business school. And it's really what I base my work style on now, where I don't take meticulous notes in meetings. In fact, To do so now would feel like a step backward because taking notes is so often the role of a role someone's shoved into, taking notes on behalf of the team, especially in these collaborative environments where you share your documents afterwards. But I think I've gone too far the other direction because sometimes it's really valuable to know what happened and to share what happened. And it doesn't always mean that you're the least powerful person in the room if you're the one noting what was important about a conversation.
0: Oh my goodness, Diana, we've really come full circle back to power, haven't we? We found our way back. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting about this topic of taking notes because in some circumstances, taking notes is seen as a um, supporting role to a conversation. And sometimes there's a particular person who is, who is their, their job there is to take notes and not to contribute. Mm-hmm to the conversation and that in itself is a certain expertise and that is their their contribution is taking the notes specifically then there are situations where there's just a group of people who are all supposedly meant to contribute to the conversation but one person voluntarily or by someone else volunteering them gets as you say kind of shoved into the role of taking notes and By default like it's hard to take really good notes that other people can understand and also contribute equally to the conversation so sometimes by being the one who's taking the notes you can end up as a less powerful having a less powerful seat at the table on the other hand sometimes taking the notes means that you have extra power because people don't have very good memories and so No matter what, you're going to miss things, right? Like you're choosing what gets recorded, how it gets recorded, how the next steps get explained and just distributed. So that's a lot of power, too, in that like you're basically getting to tell the story of the meeting. Mm -hmm. So I feel like taking notes is actually is a very um, touchy subject when it comes to power.
1: Yeah, I'm thinking about my workplace where I came in, determined not to be the de facto note taker and sustained that, which was never a problem. But then I joined a project where I was joining as the product manager on a project after like months of engineering and design work. And my manager mentioned to me in a one on one, like one way to slide into adding value is to be the one taking notes in these group conversations, first of all because you get to tell the story, but second of all because it's a way of adding value that starts with listening and ends with being the go-to store of knowledge, you know, which is a great thing for a PM because then if you're at the nexus, you can really influence outcomes and you can identify conflicts before they happen. So like by creating a nexus of information, you set a pattern of being the nexus of information, which is even more ripple effecty in an environment with shared documents, like I work on a shared document collaboration tool. And the act of sharing a document is not much different from sharing a Facebook post or an Instagram post or tweeting. When you're the one who creates the object, all of the responses to the object flow back to you. And you have sort of de facto, the first dibs on responding to them. So it's a way of kicking off this call and response over asynchronous messaging. So in a way it is, <laughs> it creates power out of nothing, but that is when it, it reinforces a role that I already have.
0: So I'm curious though, when someone says to you like, actually, what about taking notes? This, this would be a way for you to contribute to a team and like kind of bond. Mm -hmm. build trust with the team and find a role for yourself like I think that I ask because for me if that were suggested to me I think at least at first I would kind of balk and be like why do I have to be the note taker is it because I'm a woman Mm -hmm. is it because I'm I write complete sentences and like, wh- who else could be a note taker? Or are we going to take turns? Like, is it going to be equal to job of note taking? And I think that's because it matters to me so much that tasks that could potentially be considered like supporting roles or um, kind of like office housework be fairly distributed.
1: Yeah, I mean, it matters a lot to me as well. That's why I came in with resistance, I think that the reason I was fine with it was because it came through in a one-on-one conversation as a true suggestion, not a command cloaked as a suggestion, and that's the trust relationship I've built with my manager over time. In context, it was really clear to me that it was an invitation and a good one, uh, not a uh, not a weird gendered expectation out of the blue but i think that if it had come out in a group setting it would have felt really different
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it is interesting because it it does fit very neatly into the role of a product manager especially as one joining a new team but the role of product manager is so can be defined so differently depending on the context i i imagine i think of it as a pretty broad bucket. Do you, do you? Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, it's really broad. Yeah, it's really broad. I, I'm actually thinking in right now of like the different surfaces of note taking, uh, all of which show up in product management in various ways. But there's note taking on paper, possibly on post its. There's note taking on a computer with the presumption of sharing out afterward. And then there's writing on a whiteboard, which is altogether different.
0: Ooh, I have a lot to say about this. Say it! Oh, Diana, this is also to do with power. So when I first came to San Francisco and started working in technology in San Francisco technology companies, I was really thrown off by the whiteboard thing. Oh my goodness. I mean, I had worked at, at a startup in Europe and... I feel like we didn't do whiteboards that much. We were very quiet. We sat in chairs at our desks. I don't know. It was just different. And all of a sudden, I kept having these experiences where I'm trapped in a little glass room and someone is standing and writing very quickly and talking very quickly at a whiteboard and I'm sitting at the desk and feeling awful, like Someone's teaching me a lesson. Someone's, like, I am, I have no power in this situation. I'm a little bit suffocated. I'm in a glass bowl. They're talking too fast. And, like, what, I don't even know how to make space for me at that whiteboard. And, like, I'm not really used to interacting in that way where you, like, draw things with stinky markers (laughs) alongside each other. You know, it just was awful really hard for me as i described this i realized it's not hard for me now at all and i am i think i'm you know there are situations where you're working with a whiteboard and it's a hostile environment <laughs> <laughs> and there are situations where you're in like a really warm friendly collaborative environment and it's really fun and the the excitement of a whiteboard is, like, it's ephemeral, you know? So it, it can feel like there are no stakes, you know? Just get everything out on the board. We're going to erase it later anyways. It's a way for everyone to turn their focus toward a thing and not actually at you. Mm-hmm. It's, it can be, like, such a great tool, but... Um, I certainly encountered it at first as this like power thing where I was like, I just feel like a student being chastised by a teacher that I don't really understand and I thought we were colleagues.
1: Yeah, well, the power move of whiteboarding is that you stand up. Yep. And once someone's standing up in a two-person glass booth, then it can be really
0: looming. They're looming. And they're also tall, all of them. All the ones who stand at the whiteboard. They are tall. Yeah.
1: I remember when I was uh, practicing for tech interviews once upon a time, the constant refrain was be the one to step to the whiteboard, you know, like that's what they're testing for in the interview in a way for product managers is like, you know, when will you take this fun? You're rolling your eyes. Yeah. I mean, I'm rolling my eyes, too. It's like who will be the one to take this from like just the idea space is something concrete that we can react to. And like part of what is being tested is will you take charge and make it concrete? That's a good thing to test. But what a silly uh, expectation to invisibly hold over people.
0: Yeah, and this thing you pointed out where you have to stand up in order to work at the whiteboard. It was such a big deal for me. First of all, I didn't realize it. For a long time, I didn't realize why I felt so bad in these situations. But then after I realized, I need to stand up too. This is the answer. Stand up too take my space at the whiteboard. It was a long time before I could even do it. I knew I'm supposed to stand at the whiteboard and I didn't want to stand up. I was just, I felt so comfortable sitting. And also, you know, when there is a really big difference between your bodies you and the other person, as soon as you stand up, it's more pronounced. Mm -hmm. If someone's taller or just very different. But when you're sitting down and you have a table between you, like there are ways you can level it a little. You can pull your chair up higher so you feel just as tall as them. But then as soon as you stand up, it's like you're exposed and you're just there. And also then I felt this pressure to think so quickly. And transcribe ideas and be talking, like just really doing a lot at once while standing there. And I was rolling my eyes just because it really sounds like this trick. Mm -hmm. Like we had said at the start of the season that we wanted to tell secrets. And I feel like this is one, that there are a lot of circumstances in technology interviews particularly for something like a product manager where the test is are you going to stand up and write on the whiteboard Mm
1: -hmm. without permission will you spontaneously do that
0: yeah and so i have a lot to say about the test but before that i feel like it's just worth saying like there are just weird little things like that i wish everyone could know So that basically it could stop being a test because everyone would like walk into the interview and just walk right up to the (laughs) whiteboard.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. The other trick in that camp that I learned from a mentor of mine was if you open the meeting, you get to close the meeting. So if you are the one to call a meeting to order, which generally flows from being the one to send the calendar invite, All of that is preamble to getting to close the meeting, summarize the conversation and define next steps and have the final say on what happened, which is another mode of note taking in a way. It's being the victor, being the history writer instead of the history liver.
0: This is another thing I really walked into and embarrassed myself with at first in San Francisco. I set up meetings. I I arrived at a new job and and people kept saying, you got to meet this person, you got to meet that person or whatever. And I was like, okay. At first I would write them emails. Can I meet with you? Will you please meet with me? This is who I am. Lots of whole paragraphs. (laughs) And then I had to learn, you don't have to do that. Just send the calendar invitation to skip the email as a courtesy. And just include very brief notes about who you are and what you want in the calendar invite. And make it editable. Okay. Had to learn all of that. Then, like, I get this down. I get some people to accept. They accept my invite. (laughs) I'm so excited. I show up to the cafe. The in-house cafe, and to me, it's like okay, we're going, we're gonna have coffee. I guess this is like, a, uh, I guess we're having a coffee date, cause the setting makes you feel like, oh, we're, we just have coffee dates here. We're just gonna like hang out a little, warm up, get to know each other, and then I get there, and it's very like, so what did you want to meet about? <laughs> like, oh, I just, oh, I just wanted to meet you, you know. And it's like, uh uh-oh, that's a big Mm no-no. I have to have a reason. I have to have an agenda. I'm the one who called the meeting. I have to make it also worth their while, you know? That was so hard to learn. I am even having like a little bit of a shame. (laughs) Uh, shame spiral just remembering it. It was so hard acclimating to a culture like that, whereas before, even at a little startup, but just in a different country, like, if you're having coffee, you're just having coffee, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm, know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, I want to beam sunlight your way in this very <laughs> dark, insulated room uh, with an, one overhead lamp to, to say, you know, oh, nobody tells you, nobody tells anybody how this stuff goes. No wonder if you have to, if the only way to learn is by trial and error and the cost of error is a shame spiral, then a lot of people are just never going to learn the secrets until now, until should we, (laughs)
0: until should we (laughs) season three? Yeah. And that was all just to say that with power comes responsibility. Mm. So if the expectation is It's great to be the one initiating because then you get to figure out how it closes and what happens next. That's to say, if you initiate something, it's your responsibility to close it out or to set the agenda and set the next steps.
1: Yeah. And there's also a power move that's about showing up and just contributing and accepting no action items and then leaving. Love that one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, right. And I have this shirt that our friend, friend of the show, Kate Houston made, uh, that says just say no to thankless emotional labor. (laughs) And I wear it to the gym sometimes. And I was thinking about how in my current role, I do a lot of emotional labor, but it's actually understood as part of my value. So it's fine. It's actually thanked emotional labor in this context on this team, in my role. That said, Being a product manager at all and optimizing for being one of the best at emotional labor, in addition to business strategy and execution, um, (laughs) like is something that people get pushed into all the time. Women in engineering who are early in their careers will get pushed into product management because it's easier for their inherent not inherent, duh. but it's easier for the strengths people want to see in them hmm. to be valued in product management where the strengths that they're actually building are harder to accept or see through a gendered lens.
0: Right. So, so for example, I think what you mean is like it's harder to accept and value technical mastery mm-hmm. sometimes for people who aren't aren't men Mm -hmm. in these settings. And then sometimes people find it easier to accept women as masters of so-called soft skills.
1: Mm -hmm. Right. So product management can sometimes be the soft skill-powered adjacency to technical expertise.
0: I have to say, though, I've worked with a number of very excellent Product managers who are men who are not good at emotional labor and just don't do it. But they're excellent product managers. So that's interesting, too.
1: Maybe there's a way out, Lisa, but I haven't found it yet.
0: (laughs) Oh, but then, okay, but so you were saying that, you know, basically one of your powers is emotional labor. Right? Like you are good at it, and one of your powers is empathy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about that a lot lately because it's one of those with great power comes great responsibility games. Like, I have this horrible feeling that that saying may come from a distasteful context, but we'll figure that out before we do the show notes. <laughs> but, you know, I have spent a lot of time in my life seeing emotions like, Colors as I walk through a room. You know, it's not quite at that synesthesia level, but they're so tangible to me in a way that is apparently not obvious to everybody. And one of the strangest manifestations of it is that if I'm talking with someone about like a hard situation with someone I don't know, I'm able to inhabit the person I'm talking with some emotional state as well as the stranger that I only know from like wounded fragments of conversation and like resolve the emotional tension by making a bunch of assumptions and I'm often directionally right like I'm often right in a direction that that at least opens up forgiveness in conversations
0: whoa that's weird Yes, and it reminds me of this book we read together a long time ago, The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake. Mm-hmm, Is that what it was mm-hmm, called? Mm-hmm. Where I think it's fiction, and the, the protagonist can taste emotion. Mm-hmm. And it's very painful and powerful, and it's a little like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is a lot like that. And what I'm experiencing with it now is, I think part of what makes me a good coach is that I have all of this baseline, super tuned emotional perception that extends not only to the person I'm talking with, but also to their entire world. But as soon as I'm a character in someone else's life, I start to take personal responsibility for their emotional state. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm in relationship with someone, in relationship is a funny way to put it, but it's like you and I, it actually doesn't happen as much with you. But uh, let's say you and I like we're together and uh, I feel a certain way and I think you might feel a certain way, but I'm actually not parsing it. Like I just have a feeling and I'm trying to think of sources so that I can make the feeling go away. And the sources that I come up with thoughtlessly are all either this is my fault or I need to change my attitude. It's Mm -hmm. never like this is not at all me. This is someone else's emotional state that I'm uh, I'm blending into.
0: So tell me a little about the responsibility that comes with that power?
1: Well, one of the responsibilities is checking my assumptions because especially with people I love and care about, it gets so muddy for me because of my care for agency as well as my like emotional porousness. So what I mean by that is I want to have agency in my own life. I want to take responsibility for my own life and my impact on others And less and less take responsibility for other people's comfort. But that is like my starting point. That's my baseline attitude since forever. Agency is important to me. And also emotional porousness. Like I'm just going to get a lot of emotions no matter what. Like I had a conversation with someone where it became clear to me that not everybody instantly leaves their body and goes into the other person's body when they, like, bump into a stranger on the street. Like, if I bump into a stranger on the street and they seem upset, I lift out of me, go into them, and then look at me through their eyes in anger, you know? I, like, didn't know not everybody did that.
0: Oh, my goodness. So, okay, it it sounds like you've... and, And I've witnessed this evolution of your kind of discovering that this is that this is a thing that's unique to you and surely there are other people with this power too but not everyone has this power and it's it's taken a lot of time and a lot of work to to learn like what what is it and what do I do with it and it sounds what you've described so far it sounds very overwhelming like could hurt so much to accept all of those emotions coming into your emotional pores.
1: Yeah, but I've just always lived with it. So, you know, it it doesn't feel abnormal. It feels normal and just hard, but you know, the thing that's been really helpful about training as a coach is that the Coactive coaching model, which is the one that I learned, is really big on intuition and really big on throwing out observations, throwing out images, throwing out metaphors, and just seeing if there's anything there and then being totally fine with it if it doesn't land. But there's a bias toward, like, if I'm talking with someone and I'm like, I'm seeing, like, muddy water, what is muddy water you know, it could be that they're actually feeling like they're sinking. And that's the moment that I find out because they tell me, you know. And so it's this, uh, this wonderful, like, visual realm for creating, like, refractions for assumptions. But I haven't figured out how to do that in everyday life. I feel like maybe I could say I'm seeing an image of money water. Like, earlier in this conversation, we were just talking and I was like, I'm seeing a notepad. A computer and a whiteboard. And then we had this interesting conversation about whiteboards. That's, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's an intuition per se, but it was an image. And, you know, just stating those things and inviting reaction is a different way of interacting. But if I'm actually really worried, if if it would be bad if someone were mad at me, it's really hard for me to even have images that would invite them saying, I'm mad at you. Uh,
0: Diana, can we talk about Harry Potter yes. for a minute? So. You know, our question for today was Should we be powerful? And we, we actually cor- corresponded a little bit earlier today about Hogwarts. And I'm just thinking about it a lot in relation to this question of power because I think what you're describing is like something inherent, a characteristic that you just have that's very strong. And It makes me think a lot of Harry and, you know, he just has the magic already, but he kind of suffers a lot in the beginning, you know, and doesn't really understand it and doesn't really know how to use it. And like the whole point of Hogwarts is like the students who are there have magic potential, right? I mean, I haven't read this in so long, (laughs) but in my mind, it's like, come with the magic. At Hogwarts, you learn how to use it, how to harness it for good, and really just point it in the right direction, and not let the magic just like consume you or or get taken mm-hmm. by some someone else or taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, I see that. That process happening for both of us, I think. And like one of my powers that I've, I've talked about before is quiet. Mm-hmm. And then another power is being nice. Mm-hmm. And those are my default settings. Even though like among those I'm close with, I actually talk a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> my default setting in a new environment is to be quiet, to listen. And that also makes me think of this this quote I shared before from Madeline Albright where I heard her speaking. And she was saying how she used to go into situations, important meetings, she would go in thinking, "Uh, I'm just going to listen this time. Like, I just want to get the temperature of the room. I just, I'm just going to take things in. And then she would kind of like figuratively like slap herself and just be like, (laughs) Well, but if I don't say anything, then I haven't represented my entire country. So I should also talk here. <laughs> and that, that happens with me a little bit, too, on a much smaller scale. But I think there is so much power in quiet. And so over time, I have learned how to harness it and use it responsibly and, and also not let it hold me back. So, for example, um, you know, quiet in terms of speaking in a quiet or a medium voice and also quiet in terms of, like, being economical with how much I say. You said that
1: quiet and nice are your default settings. Is there a superpower that's bubbling For you and not one of your default settings yet?
0: Well, I guess another one is about ideas, seeing things differently and always having a wild imagination. Mm -hmm. That's what's percolating under. There's like a quiet surface that's listening and just kind of letting the, the breeze flow across the pond. Underneath, there's like a lot of fishes a lot is happening, and the fishes are having babies. There's so <laughs> many ideas. It's like, it is, I am listening, but it is actually also hard for me to listen, even though I'm quiet, because I'm thinking of so many ideas. So it's different from what you're describing, where you're there's this porousness and you're having such intuition about what's happening for the other person. For me, it's like I have to make sure not to close off entirely and just go in my own little world quietly mm-hmm. and to remember to share my world with with others. And so I think my my latest chapter in work, in play, and personal things has been... Just bringing all those ideas to the surface and remembering, like, I actually have so many that they're just disposable. Mm -hmm. There's no stakes. I mean, they could, so many of them could be bad. It doesn't matter. Just keep going. There's got to be another fish. There's more fish in there. I would love to share them and spread them around. How does
1: that relate to, or does it relate to, abundance?
0: Well... Over time, I've also learned to have a a mindset of abundance versus scarcity. I was definitely operating under a sense of scarcity for a long, long time, for a lot of good reasons, like spending a lot of my life with not very many resources and really experiencing true scarcity. But after a lot of work, I, I feel like now... This thing I was able to describe, there's so many fishes, there's so many ideas percolating under the surface, there's no finite amount. I can just keep having them, and that is like a newish way of thinking for me. Whereas before, I might have thought, okay, there are only... I see a few fishes under the surface, a few possibilities... I'm going to cling to those because they might be the only ones and I'm not going to share them until I'm certain, 100% certain that it'll go fine Mm -hmm. and everyone will like them. This makes me think about
1: improvisation. We've talked about improv classes before on this podcast. I took some improv classes in the summer of 2011 before I went to business school and it really helped in business school. But part of what happened after my semester of coming in with a tiny notebook, making very few notes, and then just trusting myself to come up with something to say that I hadn't planned on, is I got really good at that. And maybe I always was good at it. I just never gave myself a chance to do it. And improvisation, like coming up with a remark in a meeting that's based only on what happened in the meeting, not based on anything else, or providing that synthetic connecting tissue that is like, these are the themes that are coming out, which theme is missing? You know, all of that stuff is really natural for me now, but I had to shed a lot of planning in order to even realize I could come up with that stuff on the fly. And that becomes really useful in public speaking You know, yesterday I hosted a big section of the company All Hands and it felt high stakes in various ways. But one of the things I did was at the end I tacked on a section of interactive Q&A where I was asking the questions and I hadn't planned or written down the questions Uh, I just came up with them while I was listening to the conversation and I added a few more and I, you know, pointed them at people in creative ways. And then I came up with this closing remark that was unplanned, but tied the whole thing together. And I think that that is the joy of live things, live conversations, things that are alive is that you can't predict what will happen. Nobody can. And just letting myself do the alive thing and come up with things in the moment instead of trying to prepare for every eventuality has been really freeing.
0: That's something that it seems like didn't come naturally to you. You had to learn flexibility as well because you're such a planner. Yeah,
1: I had to throw out a bunch of resources and a bunch of habits and then figure out how to swim so it wasn't natural but abundance is natural Mm -hmm. i really believe that so you know my brain is abundant your brain is abundant i try to see abundance in most things probably some people don't experience that or wouldn't label it that way but you know if you throw out the first five drafts the sixth draft is going to be really fresh and it's the, same, it's the same thing with, you know, if you never let yourself come up with five drafts, but you just come up with, you know, the right thing to say in the moment for the people who are there and the conversation that's happening, that can be surprising and surprising is exciting.
0: I would say that for me, uh, in order to get to a sense of abundance, it felt like a lot of things had to be in place. Over a long period of time, a lot of variables came together, and, and I imagine for you as well, there were a lot of things leading up to that moment that kind of laid the groundwork for you to be able to do that, you know? The improv classes you've taken in the past, and just all of the work you have done so far, and is, I, I think you are kind of giving a nod to this, there's this this challenge we have right now, I feel like, in telling secrets, mm-hmm. which is like, the secrets are not necessarily equally applicable mm-hmm. to any situation, you know? so So, for example, with that, with the going back to the whiteboard, you know, like, I mean... There's certainly a lot of people who would like to have a chance to stand at the whiteboard and they're not going to even, they don't have a, remotely a chance to get in the room, mm-hmm. you know. But then, like, I think mostly the the chunk of experience we've been talking about today is the one where, like, you're in the room and you're like, but why don't I have the the power I feel like I should have yet? Mm-hmm. You know, it it assumes a certain... A few things are in place, but there's there's something missing that you have probably have agency over. Right. And this
1: gets really painful when why don't I have the power? I feel like I should is actually about other people being utterly unwilling to receive you as powerful.
0: Yeah, and sometimes, sometimes I've been in the classroom room. With the whiteboard, and it's like, I don't even want to have power in this situation because that person is just kind of a jerk, mm-hmm. you know? And it's not about me at all. It's not about me not having enough confidence to stand up. It's like, ugh, I don't, this is not the glass box that I want to participate in, mm-hmm. you know, or that is even supportive in me taking my power so so that kind of goes back to the beginning like like should we be powerful yes what should we do with our power when and how should we use it
1: yeah who deserves our best energy and also starting from we're powerful whether we want to be or not What should we do when our environment isn't reflecting that back to us, when our environment is diminishing the apparent strength of our power? Mm -hmm. It really bothers me. We were talking earlier about my burgeoning, fiery belief that early career coaching for women in hostile industries is one of the highest leverage things Available. And I say that as a coach, but I also say that as someone who got coaching early in my career. And it really smoothed out a lot of volatility because I had someone who was reflecting back something different to me that made it very clear that my everyday was not the only way it could be. Mm -hmm. Because I got to see myself in a different light once a week, once a month, whatever. So Yeah, it makes me so mad when people don't get to fully experience and feel the edges of their explosive power because nobody's ready for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I would say what you're describing has been true for me too, mainly because of you. Before I had a coach, I had you. And in moments uh, where... I was really struggling and really blaming myself. Like, I guess there, there must be more secrets that I need to figure out. Like, I, Or I just don't belong in this environment or that environment. And then having you with your intuition and empathy asking me questions like, well, what would it take for you to stick it out a little longer? Like, what do you... What could you imagine would help you if you could have anything? And then that kind of unlocked all the fishes in my pond, being like, well, then I would ask for this ridiculous thing and that other crazy thing and a really long vacation after that. (laughs) And once all those things came out, you know, I asked for them and just got them. You know, but uh, it took so many things like like me expressing my struggles and vulnerability to a trusted advisor who then asked me a great question, which led me to ask questions of others who were very receptive and ready to support me with whatever I asked. I mean, it was a whole chain of things going right that led to me sticking it out and being glad I did.
1: Yeah, I remember that arc like it's yesterday because I still think about how much was going on then, you know, like I was dipping my toe into asking powerful questions driven by intuition and a lot changed for you and then a lot changed for me after that. But I want to go back to your point about secrets only being relevant in context and all of the prerequisites that need to be in place. I think so much of what I have reluctantly slash uh, righteously done in my life is try to assemble all of the prerequisites that I imagine the guys around me have and take for granted, and then see what's possible from there. And you know, choosing to work in an industry that traditionally has uh, a lot of resource abundance. Was a choice. You know, I wanted to work in tech for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons was because abundance thinking, the pie is always growing, the charts are always up and to the right, is enough of a reality that it's a default stance here in San Francisco. And is that a bubble? Absolutely. It's really, really different from a lot of people's realities and perceptions. But it's such an interesting thing to slip into because. Once you fight your way in the door and assemble a bunch of things and a bunch of lucky things happen, you know, a bunch of unlucky things don't happen, then you can end up in a place where when you ask a question that's just like the question someone would ask if they lived an entitled life, no one can really tell you no. I mean, they could tell you no, but if they did, they'd have to reckon with the fact that they would have told someone who looks different from you, something different. And so if you scrabble your way, there comes a point when you can get a yes, an easy yes, but getting to the easy yes is so hard.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yes, yes, getting to the yes is really hard. I guess I feel like it is important to to make that distinction that the world we're operating in during our day jobs is like very pretty unusual and characterized by abundance, real abundance. And one of the the things that we have learned is about how to access that abundance because it it can also just be so maddening to be, inside the space where there's abundance but you're like not experiencing mm-hmm, it mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. you're just like i guess everything's going great here i guess that chart is going in the right direction and everyone's celebrating and how come everyone else is relaxed and and i And then you don't even realize you're, like, remarkably underpaid and other people have coaches and all this stuff. But, like, how would you know? Mm -hmm. How would you know if you have no point of reference Mm -hmm. and no one tells you the secrets? I'm glad
1: we're at least sharing what we know.
0: Me too. We'll keep doing it.
1: So, Lisa, what's happening in May?
0: (laughs) You get, like, so overcome with emotion. (laughs) Uh, So, what's happening in May is, should we live? We are going to have a live event, and I'm so excited about it, Diana.
1: Me too. We've had a bunch of bunch of great conversations about how it's going to go we've got some incredible openers lined up and this is like the true dream i think this was in v1 of should we empire was you know live events
0: yeah check check yeah because then we get to meet our listeners in person and my my real dream is like somebody i don't know shows up oh yeah somebody that neither of us knows shows up (laughs) if you are a stranger to us, you're a listener, and you've never met us, and you live in San Francisco, or you might be here at the time of our event, I hope you will come because I'll be so happy and surprised.
1: (laughs) Please come up to us, and yeah, we'll just be elated. We'll be elated.
0: I'm really interested in meeting strangers. Well, I mean, they're not strangers if they listen to the podcast. That's so true. Who are they then? They're uh, they're true friends. True friends <laughs> <laughs> This by the way was a typo, the true friends. Yeah, But yes. just stuck.
1: That's our it's like our version of Lady Gaga's little monsters is uh, uh. should we's uh, should we's true fans are our true friends. <laughs> Take the typo and run with it.
0: Uh, well. On that note, so if if you want to really be a true friend and come to the live event, you can get all of the details at shouldwe.co slash live. Please come. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have many people to thank. Should we begin with our patrons?
1: Yes, thank you to our patrons. You too can join the Love Hate Club at shouldwe.co slash pay. This is a new thing we're trying for season three. We're all about being in it for the long run and per episode patronage through a site called Patreon was the solution we came up with and we're really happy and excited with this so far.
0: Helps us be sustainable. And we would also like to thank Yosh at Faultline Studios for recording and editing this episode. Thank you to the band
1: Canada for our theme song, Hey Garland.
0: Thank you to Math Time's Joy for our identity.
1: And thank you to all of our listeners who keep changing our beliefs about what should we is for. Thank you
0: very much. Should you tune in next time? We'll leave it to you.